Welcome to Actionable Insights on the Business of Healthcare, a podcast from Doctivity Health to help you navigate today's challenging healthcare environment. More than ever, business success enables investment in people and technology needed to best care for your patients. I'm your host, David Jolly. It's my pleasure today to talk with Dr. Glenn Steele, chairman of G. Steele Health Solutions, an independently operated venture launched to help healthcare organizations create value and improve quality. Also chairman of the City of Hope world-renowned cancer and diabetes research and treatment organization, Dr. Steele is the former president and chief executive officer of Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania. He previously held executive and academic leadership positions at the Pritzker School of Medicine, the University of Chicago, Harvard Medical School, Deaconess Professional Practice Group, and New England Deaconess Hospital. Dr. Steele also serves as chair of the Doctivity Advisory Board. We're going to cover a lot of ground, so this will be the first of two parts. Be sure to check out part two in our next episode. Welcome, Glenn. I didn't want to take up all of our time with your intro, (laughs) but uh, your bio is impressive, so I wanted to let people uh, know what you've been up to. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see where our talk takes us. We're going to talk a little bit about financial sustainability, creating value, and improving quality. I've read various accounts of the current state of the healthcare industry with a record number of CEOs leaving in the past year, ongoing financial challenges, and difficulty recruiting. What are your thoughts on the state of the healthcare industry as we begin 2023? Well, first of all, it's good to talk with you again, Dave. You know, we've had a great working relationship now for almost 20 years. Great pleasure interacting with you. There's always a huge amount of challenge in delivering care and figuring out how to pay for care. And that's gone on for decades. It's exacerbated now for a couple of reasons. The most obvious temporary reason, and I hope it's temporary, is the COVID crisis. And then what I call the the exhaust from the COVID crisis. And that exhaust is based on the human resource. I mean, people are truly exhausted and there's a huge amount of uh, stress on turnover at all levels of, of healthcare delivery, not just nurses, and but, you know, administrative leaders and, and docs and, and what have you. And, and the pipeline, you know, the pipeline is changed and people's expectations in terms of their work satisfaction and requirements have changed. And all of that has been under great pressure because of COVID and the huge influx of very, very sick patients during the first and second waves of of hospitalized COVID uh, patients. The other issue is the financial issue. And that, again, is has been exacerbated by COVID. The cases that we were taking care of as healthcare providers were largely not the cases that produced the greatest margins, uh, particularly for hospital-centric uh, integrated delivery networks. And in fact, huge amount of, of stuff that was pushed out, you know, whether it was orthopedic elective orthopedic uh, procedures or cardiovascular procedures or even oncology diagnostic and therapeutic procedures did two things number one they you know they certainly affected the patients because the patients couldn't get the care because they were they were essentially put uh, behind the, the covid patients in line for good reason and then the second thing it pushed a huge amount of financial stress into the provider system. And for a while during the Fed's response, which was, I think, an appropriate response, there were ways of financially mitigating uh, some of the stress, particularly for the big networks and the hospital centrics and what have you. But that's gone now. 
that's gone. <laughs> and yet we still have the consequences in, in what I call the exhaust from COVID that are still out there, both in terms of patient care delivery and in terms of finance. I imagine no CFO in the world would be happy with the hospital full of COVID or influenza people and empty ORs. Well, that's exactly right. But there's an even more, I think, fundamental issue that's going on that's not necessarily COVID-related, and, and it's been COVID-exacerbated. And that is, and this is my belief, but I think there's some evidence to support my bias. I believe that with intended change from uh, fee-for-service as the primary means of reimbursement to something else, you know, whether it's population-based capitation or whether it's shared risk or whether it's uh, pay for performance or what have you, that all the hospital centrics are under pressure. And I would think that unless there was a huge change in the in the sociology of most hospital-centric integrated delivery systems, that a lot of them have no sustainable business, period. You know, I always remember you talking about the concept of providing the right care at the right place and time. Is it correct to say that the hospital-centric business model is no longer sustainable? I think it depends on the individual markets. It depends on the ability to concentrate the volume into uh, into larger, ever larger integrated delivery networks. It depends on on how stringent um, the cost issues are are managed, basically. And it depends on the leverage in terms of how many payers that you have and, and, you know, how capable you are of leveraging your your provider concentration versus the payer's concentration or lack of concentration. But, you know, most of us, even back in the day when I was CEO, are extraordinarily dependent upon the public payer, whether it's whether it's Medicare or whether it's Medicaid. And, and there's no question that the, the decision, even before ACA, and then certainly built into ACA, was to squeeze down on the amount of reimbursement per unit of work, which which is at the fundamental core of fee-for-service, and also to begin the transition to non-fee-for-service reimbursement. So the ability to make money on taking care of Medicare patients got tougher and tougher. And Medicaid was even more stringent. For every dollar of expense, you were probably losing 25 or 30 cents on your margin for the Medicaid population. And the way most IDNs took care of that was you know, to consolidate and to be able to make up for those losses with the commercial payer. And the commercial payers are now more and more uh, squeezing down on reimbursement per unit of work and then moving to shared risk in various ways. It isn't going to go away. Mm -hmm. COVID made it worse. And, and And the question is, how do you respond regardless of where you are on the spectrum? If you're 100% fee for service or if you're 50% or in a number of very unusual cases like ours when I was at Geisinger, if a lot of your payment came from essentially capitation between the, the payer side and the provider side, which for us at Geisinger was in the same fiduciary, you have to have fundamental blocking and tackling approaches that increase your revenue, that help you define the amount of revenue per individual provider as compared to the ceiling, which is the amount that that provider should be able to capture in a given market. And then the second part of the equation is you've got to have extraordinary sensitivity to the costs for providing a given service. And you've got to be able to feed that sensitivity back to the leaders of individual service lines to minimize the cost without, obviously, without uh, hurting the quality of, of the output. And I'd imagine that that's even more magnified today with the inflationary figures we're seeing for the cost of supplies. 
we know the cost of labor is, is extraordinarily increased. The way you can compartmentalize this intellectually and, and ideally administratively is to put one list as costs I can control. Mm-hmm, right. And then and another list costs I can't control. <laughs> <laughs> and that gives you a pretty good idea of what to focus on, right? I mean, right. you know, we're not going to be able to change inflation until the Fed drives us into a recession, <laughs> which isn't so good either. Right. But there are things that we can control. And as you're aware, you know, we got a lot of... Uh, publicity and a lot of renown out of changing how care was given. But underneath of that was a huge amount of blocking and tackling at Geisinger. And 50% of our uh, reimbursement was still fee-for-service when I was at Geisinger. So the the blocking and tackling that we did had to be pertinent to both the fee-for-service 50% as well as the 50% that was essentially capitated. So what you're referring to here is your priority to consistently provide value and improve quality. And that was through what you um, started as the Proven Care Program, correct? Yeah. You know, that's tough. And and that's because you're trying to change people's behavior. And regardless of whether it's the provider behavior or whether it's the patient behavior, you know, changing behavior is not easy. (laughs) And we had a lot of advantages that most integrated delivery networks did not have, including, of course, the payer and the provider being in the same fiduciary with our insurance company, essentially paying for 50% of our care. So that gave us a huge advantage. The other advantages that we had, as you know, is we had a great brand and we had a great brand on both the payer and the provider side. When people thought about coming to us, I mean, they, they didn't question our capabilities. They didn't question the quality of our output. But on either the insurance side or the provider side, that was a huge advantage for us, as well as market share. So, Glenn, if you would just tell us a little bit the concept overall behind proven care, about you know how it works with a, a set price and a set list of services. Yeah, well, our assumption as we went into you know changing how care was delivered was that that probably thirty percent of what we did was variation in care that could not be justified on the basis of a a doc really proving that there was better outcome. And a good, you know, a good concrete example of that was in orthopedics. What would an orthopedist, and we had about 25 highly productive orthopedists when I was at Geisinger, what was their approach to anticoagulation in patients who are having elective uh, hip uh, surgery or elective knee surgery. And when we did an inventory of of the practice patterns for our orthopedic surgeons, what we found was it was all over the map. There was no unified approach. You had to ask the individual surgeon what was their preference in, in terms of defining anticoagulation. Hypothesized that probably pertain to a huge number of things from the beginning diagnosis of an individual needing a hip replacement or a knee replacement until after rehab was done. If you think about any kind of production that's a, a complex production of a product, whether it's a service or you know whether it's a, a device, when you have variation, you generally have worse outcome overall for a group of patients with a given diagnosis and a, and a given therapeutic course than if you have less variation. You can't have zero variation, obviously, because there's individual, uh, justified individual variation for a given patient with a given set of problems. But in general, we thought that probably 90% of the variation that we had in our caregiving was unjustified and was leading to worse outcome. 
And the same thing could be said with interventional cardiology or coronary artery bypass or how we took care of patients with type 1 diabetes and what have you. Mm-hmm. So we basically said, what would happen if we tried to have consensus occur amongst our own providers to get as close to what we thought would be a perfect set of performance criteria, metrics that would start at the time of diagnosis and then could be monitored until the care was given and the rehabilitation was done, or in the case of diabetes or chronic disease, we would follow and see if we got close to perfection as defined by our own providers, what should be done every time for every patient with the caveat that there has to be some allowed variation, but that variation has to be justified amongst the providers themselves. It couldn't be, you know, some individual message from God, or it couldn't be based on how the training had occurred 35 years earlier. Our postulate was, let's, let's see what the outcome was before and after we applied the, the best practice. And w- the outcome was defined in two ways. The first and most important way was what would be the, the decrease in complication rate for patients who underwent cabbage or, you know, underwent a hip replacement as we got to this best practice that was consensus. And then the second was, what would the economic consequences be? In other words, were we lowering our costs for giving better care? And that's what we found. We were lowering our costs for the, for the diabetic patients. We were lowering our costs 25 to 30% because there were fewer complications. And I'm talking about vascular complications, heart attacks, strokes. There was less retinopathy over a period of two to three years. So the return on that was, was huge. And because 50% of our reimbursement was total cost of care decrease because of our insurance company, that was a huge plus on our business model, huge plus. And for the fee-for-service, essentially, we were also decreasing the amount of complications. So there was less chronic disease coming into our hospitals and it opened up, it opened up access to patients that, you know, that had other other needs that were not due to chronic disease mismanagement, but were due to significant issues that quite frankly could be taken care of by our inpatient providers at a higher margin. <laughs> yeah. So I mean that was it. <laughs> and and we followed that best practice approach no matter what the insurance was for our patients, correct? Yeah. Well, you know, we were necessary for Highmark. We were necessary in certain parts of our market for Capital Blue Cross. We were certainly we were fifty percent of the provider mix for uh, Northeast Blue Cross before it, it got uh, merged into Highmark. And we negotiated the best fee-for-service rates we possibly could because that's what you do. But if we were doing better with the patients, regardless of whether the patients were insured by us or insured by the non-Geisinger insurers, the patients got good value from it. And we were able, because of the backfill and increasing our market share for a lot of the stuff that was you know, higher margin, as opposed to the chronic disease mismanagement that usually ends up in the emergency room on a Friday night, we got a benefit in two ways financially, and, and we didn't ask our providers to provide different care. We, we asked our providers to provide the same care regardless of what the insurance payer was. I remember the New York Times calling it the warranty. Yeah, that was packaging. One of the things I learned was if you do something that's substantive, it's fairly, fairly <laughs> complex. It's got less pizzazz than if you package it in a, in a, sex, in a sexy way. And, and the packaging uh, that we did, uh, starting with cabbage, and then we, we did the same thing for hips. 
But we basically negotiated with a couple of uh, large uh, self-insured employers. Uh, Walmart was the first. Uh, we basically said, we'd, we'd give you a price, one single price for anybody who came to us who needed to have a cabbage. And we would also include in that, it was hospital, provider, anything that happened during the care would be included in that price. And we also included in that uh, if there were any complications for three months, regardless of whether they were related to the surgery or not, we include that in the package price. So that was the so-called warranty. And that was just, again, that was sexy packaging, but it, it was a function of the actual change in our caregiving and the benefit that it had in decreasing complications. So would you say that those concepts behind proven care that you implemented 15, 20 years ago, are they still applicable today and could they help throughout the industry? Yeah, yeah, they're still applicable. It's just that they haven't been scalable. We proved we could do it at Geisinger, but uh, it's, I mean, the reaction of, of most large organizations, good organizations with good leadership to stress in terms of their finances is to default to their usual business model. And the usual business model is still heads and beds and fee for service. And in a way, if that worked and it's not working, I, I don't think those are sustainable uh, principles now for the reasons we talked about earlier. But, mm -hmm. but if it worked, uh, it's a hell of a lot easier than changing the sociology of, of proven care. I mean, I always remember having 25 orthopedists sitting around a table trying to decide as a consensus you know, <laughs> what, they what they should all do together. That was a hell of a sociologic challenge. But it's proven to be hard to scale. If I remember correctly, though, the anticoagulation numbers were extraordinary. Well, the anticoagulation numbers were extraordinary. And and, you know, we got our men and women to do what was hard to do because they were basically focused on improving uh, their patient outcome. And uh, I mean, the, if we led, you know, if we led the sociology process with uh, we're going to do this because we want to make more money, that would not have flown at all. What we led it with was let's see if we if we could do best practice with the caveat that you can do variation as long as you justify it to your colleagues. Uh, and also the caveat was that we would be very dynamic in the best practice. And, you know, for, for cabbage, we had 144 things from beginning of diagnosis to end of rehabilitation that we insisted be accomplished on every patient that came to us. And then there was probably 10% that could be varied, but that percentage had to be justified. And by the way, the 144 things, you know, were not set in stone. So when there was new information that was out on something that was uh, going to improve outcome, you know, we would go through a process and include it in, you know, in the, the next iteration of the best practice paradigm. So right. those are really hard things. And I want to make sure that everybody understands that at Doctivity, a lot of the products that I think probably derived from our experience at Geisinger years ago, they're blocking and tackling products that are a lot easier to apply than changing people's behavior. Because <laughs> changing behavior is so tough. That's the end stage of what we did. And lots of really good places, really good brands out there, and lots of great caregivers don't have all the advantages that we had at Geisinger. But the blocking and tackling stuff, knowing precisely how much of a given market for a given service you're actually capturing and being able to target that down to the individual provider 
and setting goals and actually enabling those goals to be met. That's the blocking and tackling that can apply to fee-for-service, quite frankly, mm-hmm. not, not necessarily shared risk or capitation or what have you. And that's critical. That is absolutely critical. And, and you and I know that that didn't get a lot of pizzazz when we were riding high uh, because of proven care, but it was absolutely fundamental to everything that we did. If, if we didn't have the revenue that we had, even on the fee-for-service side, and if we didn't have the margin, I would have been fired by the board. <laughs> Which is why a lot of the CEOs are turning over now. <laughs> there you go. You know, it goes back, I think, to one of the consistent messages that you had throughout the years that we worked together at Geisinger. And that was the importance of attaining, sustaining, sufficient operational and financial performance. And the goal of that being that you're going to be able to then fund what you need to do to take better care of people. Absolutely. No question about it. And again, you know, we we were blessed. I mean, it wasn't all brilliance on our part. Some of it was in 2004, the change in the reimbursement for our Medicare Advantage. I think in one year, it was Bush one. There was something called MMA, which was the, the commitment to increase the reimbursement for Medicare Advantage by, I think it was 14%. Uh, there was also a fundamental there was a fundamental change in how patients were categorized in terms of the severity of their illness for Medicare Advantage. The, what's called HCCs, that tripped in. So there, there were a lot of things that happened that helped us with our margins. But without those margins, all the kind of innovation stuff would not have happened. The board would not have felt comfortable. And, you know, people talk about crisis leading to innovation. But what I've seen in the healthcare provider universe is more often than not, crisis leads to the default heads and beds, uh, fee-for-service, trying to leverage the negotiation with the commercial payers. I think that has a limited lifespan. I just want to remind our listeners that I had the pleasure of working with you on a book that you co-authored about proving care. And if anyone's interested, it's available through McGraw-Hill Publishing or your favorite bookstores. I just wanted to mention that. That's a wrap for today, but we continue speaking with Glenn in our next episode. So be sure to check that out. There's a lot more for us to cover with him. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please share, rate, and review it on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. For more information on how Doctivity provides actionable insights to drive revenue and improve operational performance, visit DoctivityHealth.com, where you will find our videos, blogs, case studies, and more. See you next time for Doctivity's actionable insights on the business of healthcare.